Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning, every day. Uh, sorry, I mean, <laughs> I said good morning, everybody. But I was just going to say it's uh, Father's Day. Um, and I, it's a beautiful day, actually, because I was walk, walking in the park there, and there's somebody I know who's singing Beatles songs. And he said, Hey, Swami, remember it's Father's Day. <laughs> but it's a beautiful day, that's true. Um, Today's subject, Bhumananda, you are the vast, you are bliss. The context is this, that whenever we talk about Advaita Vedanta, there is, we describe it as, there's this line we often quote, Brahma Satyam, Jagat Mithya, Jiva Brahmaivanapara. Brahman alone is real, the world is an appearance, and sentient beings, you, you are none other than Brahman. And we quote this often. And people ask for a source. You know, where is it from? It's attributed to Shankaracharya, to Adi Shankaracharya. And the source is actually a little known work. Again, attributed to Adi Shankaracharya. But maybe some scholars say may have been written by somebody else. This is called Brahma Jnana Valimala. A short work of about 21 verses. Which, uh, in which all the conclusions of this vast literature of non-duality, of Advaita Vedanta, is sort of compressed there. In simple, powerful Sanskrit, uh, it, it is conveyed in those 21 verses. The 20th verse has this line, Brahman alone is real, the world is an appearance, and you, or the sentient being, is none other than Brahman. However, today's subject, the subject matter, is taken from the third verse the third verse of this uh, unique composition. The third verse goes like this. Nitya shuddho vimukto ham nirakaro ham avyayaha bhumananda swaroopo ham aham mevaham avyayaha I am eternal. I am pure. I am ever free, I am formless, and I am immutable. I am vast and bliss I am, immutable I am, I am. So this is, uh, this is the verse, and from there this phrase is actually the, what I want to concentrate upon today. Bhumananda Swarupoham. I am of the nature of, I am vast and I am bliss. Vast I am, bliss I am. That we are vast, that we are bliss, seems to run counter to um, our, our daily perceptions. You know, we feel we are small. After all, look, here I am. And there's so many others besides me. I'm just one tiny creature in this vastness of time and space in this universe. And bliss, less said of it, than better. Mostly our life is not bliss. So his life is of a hard struggle and suffering, and some amounts of happiness may be here and there. And yet, the Upanishads tell us, this, uh, come, this verse is telling us, you are, the na- you are vast and you are bliss. This verse is actually drawing upon an Upanishad. 
from the Chandogya Upanishad. In Chandogya Upanishad, you find the teacher is telling the student, Sanat Kumar is telling Narada, is telling the student, Yo vai bhuma tat sukham, nalpe sukham asti, that which is the vast, that is happiness. There is no happiness in the limited, there is no happiness in the small. And again it reiterates, bhumaiva sukham, the vast alone is happiness. Where do you find this vast? What do you mean by the vast? And the teacher gives us a clue, gives the, teacher, the student a clue. The teacher says, Yatra na anyat pasyati na anyat srinoti na anyat vijanati tad bhuma, sabhuma. Where one does not see another, one does not hear another, one does not know another. That is the vast. Where one sees another and hears another and knows another, that is the limited, that is the small. Yovai bhuma tadamritam, athayad alpam tanmatyam. What is the point of all this? That which is the vast, that is the immortal. That which is the limited, that, that, that which is the limited, that which is the small, that is death. Vast, bhuma amritam. That which is the vast is immortal. That which is the limited, alpa. Alpa is a word which is used in all Indian languages, which means the small, limited, petty. That which is the small is death. And then the lines which I quoted, yovai bhuma tat sukham, that which is the vast is, is bliss, is happiness. Naal pe sukham asti, there is no happiness in the limited. The, the vast alone is happiness, bhumai va sukham. How does one become the vast? How are, how are we to realize that we are the vast? And there are these, uh, immediately the example comes to mind. Among Sri Ramakrishna's devotees, there were two who seemed to be polar opposites. One is Swami Vivekananda. Right here. Uh, the, like the dayan, the, the epitome of non-duality. And uh, another one was Nag Mahashaya. Nag Mahashaya was like the embodiment of humility, of um, you know, you know, being humble and low. So one, it is said, one, Vivekananda, made himself so vast, so big, that he escaped the snares of Maya, the net of Maya, of samsara. Became too big for Maya. And Nag Mahashaya made himself so small that he also escaped through the snares of Maya. We are sort of in between. We are not big enough to escape nor do we make ourselves small enough to escape, uh, to, to attain freedom. So there are these two ways, but both of the ways are the same actually. Both ways are vastness. Nag what he does is, I am nothing, I am small, with regard to what? With regard to God. God is the vast. And I make myself so small and smaller and smaller till I am not there. The vast alone is. And the vast alone remains. I am reminded of this beautiful Zen poem. A monk writes that the last clouds have drained away. The last clouds have drained away. And we sit, the old mountain and I, till only the mountain remains. The last clouds are drained away, that's important because um, purification of the mind is important. If the storm is there, you cannot sit quietly with the old mountain. The storm is the impurities in our mind, which disturb us. You can't sit quietly with the vast. 
if uh, the mind troubles us all the time you need to sit quietly with the fast then you can reduce one can reduce one one's uh, empirical self the individual the person the ego to almost nothingness then the vast overpowers the ego and the vast remains or you can be like vivekananda uh, transcend the ego and attain vastness that i am the vast, vast my real nature is the vast and this is what this verse says bhumananda swarupoham i am of the nature of the vast i am bliss i am vast let's investigate this further that's the subject today what is this vast how am i the vast and how does it help me to be free of samsara to attain fulfillment to be free of suffering another name the name for the vast is bhuma beautiful name from the upanishads very ancient name another name for the vast something that we all know and uh, you might you know you might know that not know that it means the vast brahman the word brahman which is common if you come to vedanta you always hear brahman 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 stands for the ultimate reality but etymologically the dictionary meaning of brahman is the vast bhyatvad brihanatvad atma brahma iti giyate the atman is called brahman because it is vast and expands without limit so Brahman, the meaning of Brahman, literal meaning of Brahman is the vast. Now, if you are going to be philosophical, we have to be more precise than that. Another word for the vast, you know, infinite. Another word for infinite is limitless. So, what is the vast? The vast is that which is limitless. In Sanskrit, anantam, anantam, without limit. Now, we'll do a little digging. philosophically into this concept of limit and limitless in order to, our goal is to discover the vast and how am i the vast that's what we are going to discover and how is that bliss the anantam means no limit antam in sanskrit means limit and anantam means no limit what kind of limits are we talking about what is it that makes the vast small well in philosophy in vedanta we talk about three kinds of limits there are limits in space desha the limits in time kala and there is an object limit uh, vastu what that means we'll just take a quick look at that desha parichay the limitation in space means for example you are there in that seat you are not even in the next seat let alone all over the world i am here but i am not there the moment you know that you are here in the vedanta society congratulations by the way <laughs> i know it's a struggle Yes, unfortunately, because of limited space and COVID restrictions, uh, we have to limit the attendance. But thanks to modern technology, we also have a, an extended worldwide audience. So we are limited in space. If you are limited here, and Vedanta Society is limited in space, yes. But you are also limited in space because if you are here in the Vedanta Society, you are not there. You are not in Central Park. You are not at home. Somebody I met uh, has come from all the way from Cincinnati to attend this talk. So, if you are here in the Vedanta Society, you're not in Cincinnati. If you are in Cincinnati, you're not in the Vedanta Society. So, we are limited in space. Even something big, you know, we are very proud of New York. Somebody said the world ends at at the Hudson. You know, <laughs> that's typically being a snooty Manhattanite. <laughs> But no, Manhattan ends at at the Hudson. not not uh, the world and then there is the vast united country united states not just a country it's like it's a continent 
But even that ends in the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And then there is the Americas, there, there is the, the Eurasia and the continents. They all have their limitations. The earth itself is limited. So is the solar system, vast as it may seem to be. So is the galaxy. So there is limitation in space, cut off in space. And anantam means that which is not limited in space. If something is not limited in space, if something is limited in space, it's here and not there. But if something is not limited in space, then it must be here and there and everywhere. It must be omnipresent. In Sanskrit, sarvabhyabhi. So that one characteristic of the unlimited, of Brahman, of the vast, of Bhuma, it must be all pervasive. It must be everywhere. There cannot be anywhere where that Bhuma is not. We are exploring the concept of the infinite here. The second kind of limitation is limitation in time. Everything is limited in time. A person is born and a person dies, birth and death. You go to a graveyard and you find the graveyard markers and the stones you find, born and died, beginning and end. Product is made and it is destroyed. Production and destruction. Limitation in time. Before birth, before production was not there. After death, after destruction is not there. This is called limitation in time. In fact, everything is limited in time. Whatever we experience in this world, um, from uh, the, uh, the great poet Rabindranath Tagore talks about a leaf, a dry leaf separates from the a branch and twirls around in the air and falls into the lake uh, and setting off tiny ripples. And he says these ripples spread out into the universe, even stars and planet, plant stars and galaxies, they are also going towards death. Just like the leaf is falling, the universe all it's all running down towards death. And thankfully, even Vedanta talks have, have a limitation in time. So you're not trapped here forever. If, if something is unlimited, anantam, then it, it, is, it does not have a limitation in time. It must be free of the limit of time. Limit of time, free of limit of time means there must be no birth and death for it. There must be no time where it did not exist. There must be no time where it will not exist. It existed before, it is, and it shall be. So such a thing in Sanskrit is called nityam, eternal. No limit in time means eternal. What is eternal? The unlimited, anantam, which is equal to Brahman, the absolute reality, which is equal to Bhuma, the vast. The vast must be eternal, to be truly vast. And then third, the interesting thing is the object limitation. What's an object limitation? That's a weird, a curious idea, but very interesting idea. It says that any object, any entity is itself and different from everything else. So the clock is a clock and different from the table. And the table is different from the carpet. And the carpet different from the podium, from the stage. Um, you are different from your neighbor. The head is different from the foot. So... Each entity is different from the other. This difference is called object limitation. If it is something, it cannot be anything else. In logic, this is called the law of identity. If A, A is A, that means A must, is different from all not A. All entities other than A are different from A. So object limitation. You have to wrap your head around this. It's a simple thing, like identity. You have an identity card, um, you know, like your driver's license or your passport. What does it do? It marks you as you and differentiates, differentiates you from everybody else in the world and everything else in the world. 
you are that particular person and that nothing else. Very idea of identity is exactly object identity, object limitation. You are, why is it a limitation? Look at it this way. The clock is limited to just being the clock. And it's not anything else. Isn't it a kind of limitation? It can't be anything else. You are you. You think that's great. I am, I am me. But that means you are not anything else. There is this vast uni universe of not you. Apart from you. Separate from you. That's a kind of limitation. If it's, there is no limitation, object limitation, what will happen? Follow this carefully. If there is an object limitation, then... Uh, an entity is just itself and nothing else. Uh, everything else is different from it. Uh, a is just A and everything else is different from A. It's not A. But suppose there is no object limitation. Then what would happen? An entity which has no object lim limitation, there would be nothing different from it. I'll repeat that. Nothing different from that entity. Suppose an entity does not have object limitation. Then there would be nothing in this universe different from it. There would not be a second entity different from it. No second. Non-dual. Advaitam. No object limitation implies non-duality. That which is the vast must be non-dual. Advaitam. There must not be any second entity apart from it. Whatever exists... It must be, though whatever exists must be that entity in some way or the other. If A is without object limitation, then everything in the universe must be that A in some way or the other. It cannot be different from that A. It cannot be a second entity apart from A. The Bhuma must be Advaitam. The vast must be non-dual. Now the teacher's teaching makes sense. Where one sees another, one hears another, one knows another, that is the limited because there are two. Two means you're not the vast. You're l At least if there's one entity apart from this, then that, this one is smaller by that one entity. By that much alone you're smaller. You're less. So non-dual. The vast must be non-dual. Bhuma must be Advaitam. So far so good. What have we got so far? We're talking about the vast. Bhuma. And we found the vast as another, another word, Brahman, the absolute. And Brahman technically, philosophically means limitless, anantam. Limits are of three kinds. Space limit, time limit, object limit. And everything in the universe functions that way, with space, time and object limitations. But suppose, I'm just saying suppose, theoretically, if there is something at all, if the vast really exists, there is something which is really vast, not just words, then that vast must be Without space limit, therefore all-pervasive, sarvabhyapi. That vast must be without time limit, therefore eternal. And that vast must be without object limit, therefore non-dual. In Sanskrit, sarvabhyapi, nitya, advaitam, non-dual. The vast must be all-pervasive, eternal and non-dual. Nice. You say, nice theory, Swami. Is there anything like that at all? And... Vedanta claims, Upanishad claims, and this Brahma Jnana Valimala claims that there is, the vast really exists, the Bhuma really exists, and not only that, it's you. You are this vast. Well, that can't be. How is that? How? You are giving me too much credit, Swami. Yeah, don't, um, <laughs> don't get a swollen, a vast head, a swollen head, <laughs> because we are, everybody is the vast. 
that uh, Swami uh, Ramdas' story is there. Not the Ramdas who passed recently, the American, but there was an Indian Ramdas earlier. Uh, it seems his brother was uh, mentally ill and he was in an asylum. And then Ramdas goes and the brother says to, to the Swami, uh, Swami, this is unfair. You say, I am Shiva. Uh, I am um, I'm the Lord. I'm, I'm the infinite. And everybody bows down to you. I say, I'm Shiva. They lock me up. <laughs> this is not fair. And the uh, Swami replied, well, brother, you see, when I say I'm Shiva, I mean everybody is Shiva. We are all that one re- vast reality. But when you say Shiva, you are saying, I'm Shiva, come, all of you come and worship me. <laughs> that is megalomania. If you cut off a part of the universe and say that is the ultimate reality, a part of, one among many things, that's not true. It can't be like that. What is it in reality? Is there such a thing? And Vedanta says, yes. And the answer to that is, you, mean what sense? You as consciousness, as awareness, as Chaitanyam. Look at it in this way. Let's just examine our nature as awareness. We are aware. Right now you're looking at me, you are aware, right? No, you look doubtful. <laughs> Swami, it's too hot and stuffy in here, I'm losing awareness pretty fast. Make it quick, whatever you have to say. No, you're looking at me, you're aware. You look at something else, are you aware or not? Yes. You look at your neighbor, you are aware. You look at the fan in the, up there, you are aware. If you don't look at anything, close your eyes, you are still aware. When you hear something, when we hear something, we are aware. When we hear something else, we are aware. And when we are not hearing anything, we put earplugs and sit quietly, still aware. Con- conscious, I am still conscious. When we taste something, smell something, touch something, awareness is there. If you do not touch, do not smell, do not taste taste something, awareness is still there. It's as simple as, I'm looking and I'm seeing, I'm aware. If I'm not seeing, I may be blind, but I'm still aware. I'm aware that I'm blind. I'm aware that I'm not seeing. Awareness continues. When you're seeing, awareness continues. If you see a different thing, awareness is the same. The experience changes as the object what you are seeing changes. You're, you're looking, at the, uh, looking at this now, you have a particular kind of experience. Go out and look at Central Park, you'll have another kind of experience. Awareness is the same. Don't look at anything, close your eyes, sit in meditation. Awareness is the same. No matter what we see, we get several experiences depending on the object we are seeing, but awareness continues to be the same. If you don't see anything, awareness continues to be the same. Various things that we hear, smell, taste, touch, awareness is the same. Don't smell, don't hear, don't touch, awareness continues to be the same. Awareness, consciousness, I'm using them indifferently, continues to be the same. In all our perceptions, it's the same awareness. Unbroken. Perceptions keep changing. This is something that we have to examine within ourselves and see as an obvious fact. That's true. It's there. I mean, at least notice it. We might say, so what? Thoughts. Forget external perceptions. Thoughts. If you are having thoughts, you are aware. If you are imagining, you are aware. If you, if there is desire, you're aware. If there is restless, mind is restless, you're aware. If the mind is peaceful, you're aware. 
whatever is going on in the mind perceptions thoughts memories ideas desires peaceful restless we are aware that's com that's common constant and this is awareness is what gives us all these experiences what's an experience consciousness or awareness plus object is experience you can use consciousness awareness indifferently think about it this way c plus o is equal to e consciousness plus object is equal to experience think about it it applies to all experiences we have whatever experiences externally perceptions internally thinking remembering desiring worldly spiritual all kinds of experiences are basically consciousness plus some object the objects keep changing so the experiences keep changing but consciousness awareness is the same this is what gives us the experience of life one uh, neuroscientist christoph koch he wrote his latest book is the feeling of life itself what is the feeling of life itself in the book he says it's consciousness otherwise there's no feeling there's no experience at all this google engineer who got fired um chat box has become sentient huh? you should yawn <laughs> we no it hasn't just because it gives some interesting responses doesn't mean it's become sentient by sentient as far as i understand what he means is or what they mean is is become self aware that i am a conscious being no it hasn't let alone being self aware it's not even aware of anything else it's not even aware of the engineer who claims that it is sentient no it's a machine giving responses and of course google has said that there's no no question of self awareness or sentience there why not why would you would anybody think that it is sentient it, it's uh, aware uh, it's sentient and why would you say it's not sentient you think it's sentient because it behaves it is like holding an intelligent conversation with you that's that's what's the argument it's holding an intelligent conversation with me therefore it is aware it is sentient but the argument is fallacious you are using behavior as a test of sentience if it responds to you then it must be sentient that kind that kind of response but then why go so far as an ai powered chat box why not just you put trust your hand under the tap in the in an airport it water comes out it's responding to you is it self aware <laughs> no behavior is no guarantee of self awareness in fact look at our own experience awareness consciousness where is the only place where we find awareness or consciousness only within ourselves in our own mind so what about all these people here swami people sitting next to me are they zombies are they not aware they are aware but you have no direct experience of their awareness you are only looking at their behavior you cannot directly experience awareness as an object the only place you experience awareness or consciousness is within our own minds the rest of it is supposition in fact in philosophy there's a whole subject the uh, it's called the problem of other minds whether other people forget consciousness whether other people have minds also there's a big question because there is no direct way of knowing you have a direct way of knowing that you have a mind how do you know anybody else so philosophically so awareness we are directly aware within ourselves there is no doubt about it and uh, it is constant not only is it constant in all our waking hours but also in dreams as we fall asleep the entire waking world disappears our body also disappears I means swami what do you mean the body disappears i can see that fellow lying down and snoring <laughs> from your perspective 
uh, you are seeing the third pers person objective perspective. But the person who is sleeping and dreaming, from that person's perspective, there is no experience of the body. But awareness continues because there are dreams. It's a kind of a conscious experience. It feels like something to dream. So various kinds of uh, activities go on, experiences are there. Yes, we wake up and say it was a dream, but still, one thing we cannot uh, deny, we saw it. You can deny the reality of it and call it a dream. It's only a dream, it's all right. But did you see the dream at all? Yes, if you saw it, you were aware. In dream, the awareness continues. Is it the same awareness? Same awareness. Just the object has changed from waking world object to dream world objects. And therefore experiences have changed. Then dreams also shut down. No waking world, no experience of the body or the senses, no experience of dreams in the mind. Everything shuts down. Deep sleep. Advaita Vedanta claims that also is an experience. That also is an experience. And it's very important to understand what consciousness is, what awareness is according to Advaita Vedanta. A good test case is deep sleep. From our perspective, common sense perspective, it seems to be nothing. There is nothing, no world, and we feel that there is no awareness also. There is no consciousness also. Who is saying there is no consciousness? The mind, this limited mind which is thinking, which is looking back upon memories of dream and comparing it to what deep sleep could be like and says there was nothing. It doesn't seem like there was consciousness. From a consciousness perspective, the truth is that the mind was not there. The mind was not there. Consciousness was there. That's why when the mind kicks in and starts thinking, from the mind's perspective it seems nothing was there. It was not there. The mind itself was not there in deep sleep. Deep sleep is not an absence of experience. It's an experience of absence. Just as simple as when you open your eyes and look, when we look around, are you seeing? Yes. And are you aware? Yes. Close your eyes. Are you seeing? No. But are you aware? Yes. Now imagine closing the eyes, closing the ears and the touch, um, smell, taste, all senses shut down. All thoughts and imaginations shut down. Even the sense of I shut down. No memory, no imagination, no thinking. Blank. Then also that blankness is appearing to awareness. Just like you close your eyes, open your eyes, you see this, close your eyes, a darkness is appearing to you. In the same way, complete darkness of no seeing, no hearing, no smelling, tasting, touching, no thinking, remembering, imagining. But who says awareness is gone? So in deep sleep also, the same awareness continues. In Panchadashi, the master Vidyaranya has said um, about 600 years ago, a beautiful verse. It goes like this. Masabda yuga kalpeshu gatagamyeshu nekadha no deti nastamityeka samvid esha swayam prabha Days and weeks and months pass. What's continuing? Consciousness. Years pass. Consciousness is constant. And he says lifetimes can pass. Bodies come and go. And he, eons pass. The universes dissolve and new universes come up. Consciousness is constant. The sun of consciousness, he says, neither rises nor sets. It is constant. 
It's from our perspective that there's a sunrise and a sunset. But you go to the sun, there's no sunrise or sunset. It's continuous blazing radiance. Consciousness is like that. You are like that. You neither rise nor sink. Neither rise nor set. Consciousness is constant. This constant consciousness is then not limited by time. What is limited by time? That which rises and then falls. That which is born and that then dies. Created and destroyed. That's called time limitation. But if consciousness is constant throughout all possible experiences and all the you know, presence and absence of things, then consciousness is not rising and falling. Consciousness is not being created nor being destroyed. In that case, consciousness has no time limitation. It is nityam, eternal, not limited in time. One of the qualifications of the vast, you can tick. What were the qualifications of the vast? Bhuma, not limited in time. Now we see consciousness, you are not limited in time. Everything here is revealed by consciousness. By the light of consciousness. That shining, everything shines. By its light, everything here is revealed. Tameva bhantam anubhati sarvam tasya bhasa sarvam idam vibhati. You shining. Not in, don't make it that. You know, that still distances. I hear people saying, my consciousness, Swamiji, not your consciousness, you the consciousness. My atma, my soul, Swamiji, not my soul. It's like my liver or my, my kidney. No, you. Be bold enough to say, I. That's what Vedanta wants you to say. I, the consciousness. I shining, everything else shines. You shining, you the light of consciousness, you shining. Um, the mind is lit up. Now you are able to think, remember, desire, um, you know. And then the senses are lit up. And then you are able to see, smell, taste, touch. So you shining, everything shines after you. By your light, everything here is lit up. Can consciousness be created? God created everything. So God created consciousness. Sounds reasonable. Hmm? God created consciousness. No? So when God created consciousness, was he conscious or not conscious? Hmm? Very interesting. So before God created consciousness, so when God created the world, before God created the world, was there a world? No, because God had not yet created it. But before God created consciousness, was God conscious or not? Was there consciousness or not? Then God was unconscious before God created consciousness? God did not create consciousness. From a Vedantic perspective. See, this is the age of humanism. Human being. This is the world is dominated by humanistic philosophies and good. But Vedanta says greater than humanity. Vaster and greater than humanity are, is all life, all sentient beings. Just now we are beginning to give some importance and some value to other living beings. You know? um, we, uh, till recently, human beings are the, are the top of the food chain and other living beings are there for our use. But right now we are beginning to see that, no, they are sentient too. Uh, at one time, even the higher um, living beings, you know, mammals, they were not regarded as sentient. Um, we felt... Everybody who owns a dog feels a dog is sentient. Of course the dog is aware. Um, until recently the scientists were denying that the dogs have, I mean the higher animals have consciousness no longer. You, they all admit they have consciousness. Not only lower animals also have consciousness. 
Dr. Anil said, a neuroscientist in Cambridge, he gave this talk I heard, made a very beautiful statement. He says uh, that it doesn't uh, take, you don't have to be intelligent to suffer. To suffer pain, you have to be conscious, not intelligent. So Deep Blue, the computer, which can beat a chess grandmaster, uh, it can't suffer. If a chess grandmaster beats Deep Blue, Deep Blue, Deep Blue doesn't feel humiliated. But Anil said, says that a mouse can suffer. The mouse is not particularly intelligent. It can't play chess and beat grandmasters, but it can suffer. When the cat catches the mouse, the mouse suffers. To suffer, you need consciousness, awareness, first-person experience. So consciousness, uh, not created. Before, um, you know, God may have created everything, but consciousness not created. In fact, the creation of anything and the destruction of anything is testified to by consciousness. Appearance and disappearance, presence and absence, they all depend on consciousness. You see, space and time and the presence of and the absence of objects this depends on consciousness. What I'm saying here is that um, consciousness is the basis on which desha kalavastu, space, time and object appear. So the big claim I'm going to make here is we are talking about you know, humanity, this is the world of, of uh, humanism. Humanity is important. Greater than humanity is all life, all sentient beings. Greater than all life and sentient beings is God, the God of religion. Saguna Brahman, Ishwara, Bhagavan. And greater than God is consciousness. And that consciousness, that thou art, Tattvamasi. This is the tremendous declaration of Advaita Vedanta. It is consciousness alone with the power of Maya, which is the God of the universe, which is Saguna Brahman, Ishwara, Bhagavan. It's consciousness alone with Avidya, with a fraction of the power of Maya, which becomes individuals like us. But we are that consciousness alone. First consciousness, then God, then all of universe and life, and then back to humanity and individuals. But our reality is that consciousness. You see, when we talk like this, I know what's going through people's minds. Our world view is just the opposite. Somebody or the other will ask, no, 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 what do you mean? Um, first of all, there's the universe, and then life evolves, and then evolution produces complex beings like us, and then we have consciousness. So consciousness comes much later. In one sense, true, because uh, nervous systems, brains can support minds and the mind has that reflected consciousness. In Vedantic terms, Chidabhas. That's true. But consciousness itself, is it prior or afterwards? According to Vedanta, it's prior. We feel, look, the world exists by itself. And consciousness is just one interesting feature of this world. But the world is the reality and consciousness is a feature of this world. And that's how we, we are trained from childhood onwards. Big Bang, creation of matter and energy, then the slow evolution of stars and galaxies, and then planets, and then on one planet, here Earth, somehow matter evolves into living matter, basic forms of life. Life evolves by Darwinian evolution into more sophisticated forms, which somehow at some point they become conscious. Nervous systems and brains generate consciousness. So it's silly to say that the universe exists in consciousness or consciousness is prior to the universe. It's silly to say that. But if you do that, right now, you will run up against a deep scientific objection. Forget Vedanta objection. Deep scientific objection. 
What is the scientific objection? The hard problem of consciousness. Mm. One of my favorite, <laughs> somebody said, you have a bee in your bonnet about the hard problem of consciousness. But it's good that we are living at this time where independently from a scientific perspective, from a philosophy of mind perspective, this question has been posed and it's the hottest subject in consciousness studies. How can a physical process, a material process, generate first-person experiences? Which is why the, the strong objection to when, when somebody says the Google uh, AI-powered chat box has become conscious, sentient. No, no, no. Whether it's neurons in our brain or uh, chips powered by AI programs, it's material processes. It can be described. A neuroscientist can describe what's going on, can actually see by scanning the masses of tiny electrical activity in our brains. A computer engineer can describe what's going on down to the molecular, atomic level, quantum level, what's going on in the computer chips. At no point do they come across consciousness. It's entirely material processes. How can this generate something like a first-person experience? It seems to because there is a strong correlation. But correlation is not causality. Correlation is not causality. Yesterday a gentleman who was driving me back from Connecticut, he, he said of his friend, a renowned cardiologist, who after retiring from one of the leading universities, medical universities of the United States, uh, has now taken up natural medicine. And so <laughs> this friend asked him that, uh, hey, why are you going into all this stuff now? You are a leading, uh, you know, a proponent of modern medicine. And that gentleman, the retired cardiologist said, you know, I'll let you into a little dirty secret. In all our modern medicine, we are looking at correlations. Something works with something else, a strong correlation. Then we design our treatments, our procedures, our medicines accordingly. But it's not causality. Put in layman's terms, we have no clue to as to what's going on. You, we know if you fiddle with this, this changes. So fiddle with it, this will change. Why? What's the deep structure underneath? We have no idea. So, um, how can physical processes produce consciousness? Nobody has any idea. Not only that, a Tibetan Lama, not even a Vedantin, Tibetan Lama said, if you say consciousness is produced by matter, living matter, brains, or computers, you run into two big problems, not just the hard problem of consciousness. First of all, that matter, something like matter at all exists apart from consciousness. You have to prove that. That's in philosophy, that's known as the problem of idealism. Uh, Immanuel Kant called it the standing scandal of philosophy. We are so sure that materialism is right, but we can't even prove the existence of matter. But what do you mean? Matter exists. Yes, to you, to consciousness. How do you know matter exists apart from you? I've mentioned this a number of times. A classic example, a classic objection, you know. Bill, I don't know, he's not here today. Um, Bill Conrad, he's a trained physicist. So he said to me, no, no, Swami, that's not true. It's not that uh, matter exists in uh, consciousness. Um, matter exists by itself. The world exists by itself and consciousness becomes aware of it. That's our common sense view and that's the fact. And I can show you, demonstrate it to you. How, Bill? He said, let's put a camera in this room. Then both of us, conscious beings, you and I, we will walk out of the room. Then we'll walk back in and then we'll uh, see the pictures in the camera and I assure you there'll be an empty room without any conscious beings. So the room exists outside my consciousness and so does everything in this universe. I said to him, Bill, 
in your consciousness, in your awareness, you designed this experiment. In your awareness, you told me, Swami, let's walk out. We put the camera and we walk out. In your awareness, we walk back in. In your awareness, you look at the pictures in the camera. In your awareness, you see the empty room. At which point did you step out of your awareness? It's impossible. It's logically impossible. You know why the confusion is there? The, the question takes different forms. One form is, look, long before consciousness came, there was the universe and slowly it evolved. So the universe existed without consciousness. That's one form the argument takes. The other form the argument takes is, look, right now we are conscious. I understand it. All of this we are experiencing in consciousness. But there are so many things in the universe, in far distant corners of the galaxy, which we are not come, uh, aware of. It's there. Are you denying it's there not there because we are not aware of it? We are, we are not conscious of it? Or right here, there are so many things, tiny structures uh, down to the quantum level which we are not aware of right now. We can't see it. Is it does it not exist? Just because you are uh, not seeing. So this is the um, materialist objection against subjective idealism. Uh, I think a philosopher called it the brainless philosophy. Why brainless? The mind. I'm aware of the mind. Are you aware of your brain? No, I can't see the brain. So brain doesn't exist. You are brainless. What is the answer to this? The answer is very simple. We are confusing consciousness and knowledge. In Sanskrit, uh, Chaitanya and Jnana or prama, uh, or prama. See, what is the difference between awareness and knowledge? From a Vedantic perspective, everything in the universe uh, is in awareness or in consciousness. And some of it is known, the rest is unknown. Good way of understanding this in our dreams. Suppose in our dreams I am walking, I am looking at people and there are trees and you know, the sky and earth and I can see it's from the city in the distance and I also know there are lots of things beyond the city which I cannot see uh, you know, in, the far, in the far distance and there are a lot of people whom I am not meeting right now, I am meeting some people now, a slice of the universe I am experiencing and the vast universe outside I am not experiencing. The moment I wake up, I realize everything that I saw and I did not see Everything that I experienced and did not experience in the dream, which I thought was there, a whole world, everything known and unknown was in my mind. Part of it as the known and the rest of it as the unknown. It seemed, but the whole thing was in my mind. Is that example clear of the dream? In the dream also we have a sense of, I know a little bit of the world I'm experiencing. There's a vast part of the world I'm not experiencing. And yet when we wake up, we have to admit whether known or unknown, whatever you felt there was in the dream was actually entirely in the mind of the dreamer. Exactly like that, Vedanta says, this entire universe, including this little slice of what you are seeing now or hearing now, it is known to you. Consciousness, with the help of the mind and the sense organs, eyes, is seeing something, that knowledge is there. Is hearing something, that knowledge is there. And there is a vague feeling, outside this room, there is Manhattan, there are so many things, uh, beyond Manhattan, the vast universe is there, not known to me. But as unknown there, and as the known here, put them together, both are in your awareness. That's what uh, Vedanta means by consciousness. Kena Upanishad says, Anya That which is other than the known, and higher than the unknown. What is other than the known? You say unknown, but no, other than the unknown also. The one thing which is other than the known and other than the unknown is you the knower. 
important. You are neither known as an object, nor are you unknown. Can you say, I, I don't know myself, I don't know that whether I exist. Can you ask, to tell people, can, do I exist? Can you tell me? You know your own existence straight away. So, I am other than the known, I am other than the unknown. But what am I? Which, which is this I am talking about? If you look at yourself, everything about yourself is the known. The body is the known or knowable. Mind also, known or knowable. But I, the consciousness, am not an object. It's not the known. It's a not a known object. But it's not unknown either. Consciousness reveals everything and it is self-revealed. It shines forth itself. It's like, again, Vidyarin, the, the great master says, look, to make anything sweet, you need to add sugar to it. You need to make a glass of water sweet, add sugar to it. You need to make a glass of milk sweet, add sugar to it. You may want to make your coffee sweet, add sugar to it. You want to make sugar sweet, what do you do? Add sugar to it? No. <laughs> you don't. So, it is sweet by itself. It's its intrinsic nature. You want to know something, be aware of something, you read consciousness. Want to know consciousness and be aware of, uh, of awareness, do you need more consciousness? No. That consciousness itself is sufficient. It's like the light which reveals everything in this room, but you don't need another light to know, know this light. So consciousness, this nature is called Swaprakasha, self-luminous. That's why, when at the beginning I said, whether you see something or you do not see something, whether you hear something or you do not hear something, you're continuously aware. Your, that your consciousness does not depend upon the object of consciousness. Suppose you don't see the object, you're still conscious. If you don't hear the sound, you're still conscious. You just don't know the sound, don't, you're deaf. And being deaf, and suddenly the story I was reminded. So um, the head of our monastery once said that being deaf is also a good thing, you know. The two, two monks in the monastery have to be deaf, the, the cashier Swamiji and the kitchen Swamiji. <laughs> Because in Kashir Swamiji, all departments are continuously asking for money, so you have to at least pretend to not hear. <laughs> and the kitchen Swami has to be deaf a little bit at least, because um, no matter what you do, there's going to be somebody who's dissatisfied. The, the monasteries have so many monks and so many devotees who are eating, uh, so like hundreds of people in India. And so somebody's going to be dissatisfied or the other. So I, I remember this, uh, this, uh, this happened. Uh, there was a monk who used to grumble that no matter what, what the dish was, he would grumble. He said, this is not well, well done. This was not prepared well. Too little salt or too much salt or whatever. Then the kitchen Swamiji got exasperated and said, Swami, what do you like to eat? Tell me. What's your favorite dish? And the Swami said something. A few days later, that was made. And the Swami came to the dining hall and sat down. When it was served, he said, oh, this, you know, this is... Uh, uh, Brinjal, Bangan is Brinjal, yes. This, oh, again, I don't like this. And then the kitchen swami was wild. He said, you said this is your favorite dish. Why are you grumbling? And then the swami looked stunned and he said, oh, that makes you unhappy. No, that's just my way of enjoying food. <laughs> <laughs> so the kitchen swami has to be a little deaf, but not unconscious. Now, whether you are... Hearing or not hearing, smelling or not, you are aware all the time. And that awareness does not require a separate awareness to prove its existence. Awareness is self-luminous. So, my point here is, 
Existence depends on awareness. Awareness does not depend on existence. The knowledge um, is different. So knowledge, consciousness plus an existing object, that gives you knowledge. But consciousness itself does not depend on the object. But the object, the existence of that object depends on, depends on consciousness. Object depends on consciousness, space depends on consciousness, time depends on consciousness. So how strange, what do you mean space depends on consciousness? Is it not true? Where else do you experience space except in consciousness? In your dream, I walked, suppose in my dream I say I walked from here to there. I didn't know I was dreaming. I woke up and I realized, oh, it was dreaming. I didn't walk. That means not, did I, not only did I not walk, even the distance from here to there was in my mind. That entire space was in my mind. The time I spent walking, what is it, 10,000 steps you have to complete? <laughs> that was in my mind. Time and space, both were experienced as external to myself, turns out to be in my mind. Exactly like that, uh, the claim is that time, space and object are all appearances to consciousness, in consciousness, and when you say appearance, appearance means something is appearing as something else. What is appearing as the object of consciousness? Consciousness alone is appearing as its own object. Through the incredible power of Maya, consciousness is appearing as its own other. Just as, again, nothing very weird. In our dreams, the mind itself appears as its own object. The mind itself appears as the subject and the object in the dream. When you wake up, Neither anybody else was there, nor any other object was there, nor even the subject who was experiencing it was there. It was all appearances in the dream. Right? So space, time and object are appearances in consciousness. That means if it's an appearance in consciousness, space, time and object cannot limit consciousness. Where am I going with all of this? Remember, unlimited, ananta, Limitation is space limitation, time limitation, object limitation. Now we are finding something, consciousness, which does not have space limitation, time limitation, object limitation. Because space, time and object are appearances in consciousness in you. Therefore, having satisfied all the boxes, you have ticked all the boxes. Is it free of space limitation? All pervasive. Yes, consciousness is free of space limitation. Because space is appearing in consciousness. Is it free of time limitation? Yes, we saw. Consciousness is constant. All experiences come and go. Time itself floats in consciousness. Therefore, consciousness is free of time limitation. Is it free of object limitation? Which means, is there anything apart from consciousness? No, there's nothing apart from consciousness. Because you cannot prove there exists. Even the idea of an object is an object to what? You know, Professor Arindam Chakravarti's very nice formulation. What is an object? An object is anything that objects to my consciousness. <laughs> a beautiful idea. Imagine consciousness is an endless field of awareness. And suddenly you have images, sounds, smells, taste, thoughts, imagination. These are all objects. It's like the field of consciousness is running up against these. These are objecting to your consciousness. Object is always an object to consciousness. There's no, there's no conception of an object outside consciousness. What's an ob what could be an object outside consciousness? So, no object limitation either. If it's no object limit, no space limitation, then all pervasive, no time limitation, then eternal, no object limitation. There's no second object apart from consciousness. No second means non-dual, advaitam. Consciousness, in Sanskrit, chaitanyam or chit, is nitya, sarvavyapi, 
advaitam non dual these are the very characteristics of bhuma the vast consciousness itself is the bhuma the vast you are the bhuma you are the vast your consciousness nobody denies you can't deny that you are consciousness as consciousness you are the vast you are immortal you do you are not born you do not die you do not age the body ages you do not go from um, depression to elation the mind goes from depression to elation you are always the same the same illumination there is nothing and nobody different from you you are non dual you are the bhuma everybody and everything is none other than you i'm phrasing it very carefully not a second reality apart from you they are not in you like a berries in a bowl you are not like a bowl of consciousness in which the entire universe has been packed into it no you are that which appears as this universe as this subject and as this entire universe this is bhuma the vast this itself is ananda bliss see we often think of bliss or happiness as particular feelings a nice feeling a pleasant feeling that's happiness but that is not ananda uh, that comes and goes that is mind dependent that is dependent on the object i like this object like this person like this food like this place i have a flash of happiness in the mind i call that sukha that sukha also is an- the ananda the bhuma because just like moonlight is also sunlight sunlight reflected of the moon becomes moonlight but notice there's a difference between sunlight and moonlight sunlight does not increase or decrease moonlight increases and decreases depending on the phases of the moon moonlight is not intrinsic to the moon but sunlight is intrinsic to the sun similarly bhuma the consciousness itself uh, is ananda our our um, little happiness in the mind increases and decreases it comes and goes the bhuma does not come and go it is more or less the happiness in the mind sometimes more sometimes less bhuma is never more or less but that happiness in the mind has one obje- advantage like moonlight has an advantage at night you can't see the sunlight directly you can only see it bouncing up the moon reflected of the moon similarly happiness in the mind the kind of happiness we are used to what we call happiness has one advantage it can be experienced directly yeah. we feel it the bhuma itself because you are it you can't feel it as an object so just like sat chit ananda existence consciousness bliss just like when i say pure being or existence is not a thing which exists but it is the existence of all things just as i say consciousness it's not a particular conscious experience it's the consciousness which enables all conscious experiences similarly ananda is not a particular happy feeling but that which enables all happy feelings and you are that unlimited ananda which does not come and go which is does not increase or decrease which is infinite so we at this point someone would say that but do will we feel happy when we are enlightened or not are trying to pull a fast one on us <laughs> actually will i feel happy don't worry you will feel happy <laughs> very happy happier than everybody else you see you notice one thing about truly spiritual people sadhus um, sadhakas whether householder or monk anybody who is truly uh, spiritual one common characteristic is they are happy long before enlightenment they are happy they are joyful people saint teresa of avila would say sad nun is a bad nun <laughs> <coughs> spiritual practice makes you happy karma yoga 
you know, continuous activity in the world for oneself exhausts us, is not fulfilling. But do that work for the welfare of others, for somebody else, it gives you immediate happiness, peace of mind. It gives ananda. Karma itself gives misery and friction and, str and strain and exhaustion. Karma yoga gives you peace of mind and ananda, bliss. Desire. I want, I want, I want. It only leads to frustration and dissatisfaction. If you don't get what you want, frustration. If you get what you want, dissatisfaction. These are the only two possibilities in the world. Frustration or dissatisfaction. But bhakti, when you take all those desires and channel it towards God, towards Ishwara, love of God, it gives you happiness straight away. And undiluted happiness. The bhakti, the happiness that comes from the love of God is undiluted. It's not mixed with anything else. Dhyana, meditation, distraction, a thousand different thoughts, continuously distracted. You feel exhausted and unhappy and dissatisfied at the end of the day. But focus, meditation, peace of mind, one thought, calm it down, shut it down. The quietness, the serenity within, that gives ananda, bliss. And jnana yoga, the path of knowledge, it makes you into ananda, it makes you the bhuma, it shows that you are the bhuma. So by jnana yoga you get ananda, by dhyana yoga, raja yoga you get ananda, bhakti yoga gives you ananda, karma yoga gives you ananda. Long before we realize that we are the bhuma, even before that when you walk on the path you get ananda, you get bliss. So summing it all up, you are that bhuma, yo vai bhuma tat sukham, nalpe sukham asti. Identify with your Bhuma nature. If you identify with our nature as unlimited consciousness, not limited in space, not limited in time, not limited by object, non-dual consciousness. Now, one clarification. When we say then where no one there one does not see another, one does not hear another, one does not know another, and that is the Bhuma. Don't misunderstand. If you're literally not seeing anybody else, hearing anybody else, then either you're asleep or you are in samadhi. So samadhi is good. That's the bhuma. But also when you are seeing somebody else, hearing somebody else, and uh, um, knowing somebody else, seeing, hearing, when there is an appearance of duality, bhuma says that in reality it is the vast and non-dual. The non-dual, the real non-dual can appear as the dualistic universe. So the enlightened one who knows that he or she is bhuma in, in the vast, can experience this world exactly as we are experiencing it. See the body and the mind and look at other people and interact, go out for a job, um, go out for a walk in the park, uh, talk to people, yes, even scold um, <laughs> uh, people. All of that you can go, the samsara can go on. The appearance of duality, the appearance of samsara is perfectly compatible with the limitless, with the vast bhuma. You are the bhuma and you can act within the world of appearance. It, it continues to be the Bhuma. As Sri Ramakrishna says, the vast God with eyes closed, the same God in Samadhi, with eyes open here, the same God, the same vast, unlimited everywhere. I pray to Sri Ramakrishna, Holy Mother Masharada, Swami Vivekananda to bless us all. May we realize our Bhuma nature in this very life itself. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu
this happens to be our last meeting in person um, as we shut down for summer. And we'll meet again uh, for regular programs at the end of September and get notifications. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. Huh? Stay safe. Stay as the vast. Stay in peace and joy. And relax. It's all right. You are the vast. <laughs> <laughs>